morning. How are you? Good. I just have one little thing before I jump into the message. There are these little door hangers in the back here. We would love to encourage you to grab a little stack of these in the back, and and it's a great opportunity for us just to you know send send you out in your neighborhood, in the neighborhoods around the area, or your own, and just hang some door hangers on there. It's a very very easy way just to invite someone to church, and even if you don't know them, but you're just looking out for your neighbor and you're caring for them. And so we like them so much, we think that we're just going to just have a stack printed in the back all the time. So if you just, if you're out on a walk and you're like, you know what, this is a way that I can just reach out to my neighborhood, you can grab those there and just hang them on the door. Now, they're going to have probably a ring cam, they'll know who you are, but you got to be cool with it, right? Just be friendly. Um... Uh, okay, before I get into this message, <clears throat> I need everybody to take a deep breath and just relax, and my title will explain why. I titled this message, Waiting on God, and the thought I want you to have, it will be on the screen the entire message, is how am I with waiting? We have to ask that question to ourselves. I don't think you should leave before you have an answer on that question. Uh, we're going to provoke some thoughts in you today and maybe some feelings in you today. We're going to take this wonderful piece of uh, scripture in Acts 24. And uh, as I was looking through it and looking through it and looking through it, I was like, God, where's the message here? Because we're going to watch a court case. It's, it's essentially what we're going to do. We're getting a court briefing here. But, but really, there's so much more to the story, and it's at the end of the story of which really the sermon's going to be in. And I think that when we take that deep breath, when we take a minute and we just sit and we go, how am I with waiting? I was reading this British study, and it was hilarious to read. I read it because I was fascinated by the title uh, and it felt good to learn about another country, not America. You know, like I always read studies about Americans. And I'm like, wow, we're really messed up. So it was really good to see the Brits is really messed up and not us right now. And it was interesting because they were asking the question about patience, how patient are people in today's day and age. And they did a massive study. They had a lot of really fun, interesting uh, conclusions. But I got to read a quote from uh, a piece of it. It says, oftentimes, it all, it, it, all it takes is mere seconds of waiting for people to lose their cool or their patience. I don't know if there's probably no amens there. For example, respondents reported losing their temper just after 20 seconds of waiting for ink to dry on a greeting card. I have been there. And I was reading, I was like, ink to dry? Oh, yeah, I do that so much. It's unbelievable. Additionally, it only takes 22 seconds for people to start cursing their computer or TV if a show or movie doesn't immediately start streaming correctly. Can I get an amen? I'll do, I won't do the cursing, but I will definitely start Googling, like, what's wrong with this platform? Is something wrong? Has it been shut down? I mean, it's quite unbelievable. Surveyed Brits also reported losing their cool just after 18 seconds of searching for a pen. Uh, I'm like 10 seconds. Even a cup of tea 
an undeniable symbol of British leisure time, indicated anger amongst respondents if the kettle took more than 28 seconds to boil. What kind of stoves do they have there? 28, I was like, 28 seconds? I love how they ended the uh, study. But surprisingly, 95% of all respondents still admitted that they believe patience is a virtue. <laughs> you know, our culture is very, very similar. We all relate to it. Uh, we all struggle with patience and waiting. Uh, our times are different than biblical times. The journeys were long. The times were long. The, the, the waiting for someone to get word to you took sometimes months. We don't live in that culture now. Our culture is about speed, efficiency, moving fast. And we're speeding up and we're going faster and we're going faster and faster. You know, and I think about it like everything is based on how quickly you can get something done. But then I thought about this. I thought, you know, we want everything so quickly and a lot of times when we get it quickly, it's usually not as good as what it could be. There's something about the waiting. This is why Advent and the series is so good, because it's about the waiting for the Messiah. That's the main message. But I thought about it. I thought, you know what? You know where people are impatient, but they're willing to wait? Is those in and out, in and out lines. They're unbelievable. And I'll see the in and out line. And if you have in your mind, I'm getting in and out. It's a phenomenon. It doesn't exist anywhere else, by the way. It's a phenomenon. This is fast food that's not fast. Like, it's unreal. And, you, and people will go like, well, this is its fresh-cut potato fries. And, 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 and it's like all organic, if that's what it is. I don't know. And the, the, the sauce, and, you know, and it's just unbelievable. And then they'll wait in that line. And when we go and we wait in that line, and since I, I got to tell you, this is probably not in California, like, okay to say, I'm not a fan of In-N-Out. I know. Don't kill me. It's just, it's not my thing. It's just not. <laughs> oh, don't you dare cut this mic off. I, I just, I don't like fries that when you hold them up, they flop over. It's sorry. It's real. Get them crispy then. No. Anyways, it's something about the, it's something's worth the wait. And it's something about people will, will, will be patient when something's worth the wait. And if we can do that within and out, how much more can we do it with our faith and waiting on God? If we can do it for those horrible fries, we can do it for waiting on God. Paul is going to show, actually Luke is going to show us in his writing about what it means to be waiting on God and how to do it. Let's pray. God, we love you so much. We thank you. God, as we're heading into Thanksgiving, we ask that in this time, when we have a lot of things we could say about what is not here, God, we have a lot to be grateful for. I pray for our church, and I pray for everyone here and not here. That, God, that this Thanksgiving is a time not just to be with those whom you love. And if they can't be with them because they've moved here away from their family, God, let them just in those moments sit in gratitude and be thankful. Not only that, but who you are around us. 
the life that we have, that we're alive, that we have people around us that love us, and God, that you have never, ever, ever given up on any one of us ever once, that we can be in gratitude that you are with us everywhere we go. And we love you. We ask that as we hear uh, these words from Scripture about what it means to wait, that, God, we all walk out maybe just thinking our life differently, looking at a different pace when it comes to the plan of you, God. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 24, I, I was thinking, like, how would I, tie, how would I categorize Acts 24? Acts 24, it feels like it's a road to nowhere. <laughs> Have you ever felt like this? It feels like it's a road to nowhere because the conclusion feels like it ends in nowhere. And it's the only way I could think about it when I was reading it. Now, I remember Paul last week, he was brought from Jerusalem and he stood in front of a trial, but the tribune there just wasn't going to handle it, couldn't handle it. Paul was being accused of four very specific things. Then he was brought to Caesarea under a heavily armed guard. He's waiting for a few days, and they're going to do a retrial, and it's going to be in front of the governor. Now, there's a few names you should know about, and one is Ananias. Ananias is the high priest who's leading the charge of those who are accusing Paul of these things based on hearsay. So they've got rumors flying around. Ananias believes these rumors and is also leading a charge to prosecute Paul. Tertullius is a, their prosecutor that they hire. He is the uh, opposite of defense, but the Johnny Cochran, you know what I mean? He's going to come, and he's going to get this conviction, and he's skilled, and he's talented. We don't know if he's even a Jew. They know that he's skilled, and they are of the elite of Jerusalem. They probably hired the best prosecutor they could. And then you're going to hear a name called Felix. Felix is the governor of uh, the entire region. Felix, if you read his background, there's a lot of extra-biblical writings about Felix. He was a corrupt governor. He was abusive. He would squash, absolutely decimate anyone who would rise up and riot and cause dis, uh, uh, like uh, um, uh, 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 riots or anything against Rome that would call, would call disunity against Rome. All Felix's job is to do to the, for the emperor is just to make sure Jerusalem, Israel, just maintains its peace, its Pax Romana. They don't want any issues. They just want it to just continue to pay into taxes into Rome. That's all Felix has to do. So he's always balancing the line here. He's not a good judge to bring a case in front of. You will not get a a just trial at the end of the day. And we'll kind of see it in the end of this. Acts 24. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Acts 24. We're going to read all the way through 21, and then actually the sermon will begin after 21. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders. Now remember this. Ananias is smart. Last week, if you remember, it was the Pharisees of whom Paul is one debated on whether Paul was innocent. So most scholars believe that Ananias just said, let's just go down with the Sadducees, not the Pharisees. So and some of the people that come down and the spokesman, Tertullius, they laid before the governor their case before Paul. They have a pre-meeting with the governor, like meeting with the judge, laying out the case, and then 
they bring Paul in. Verse 2. And Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since, the, uh, since through, through you we enjoy much peace. Now, this is him speaking to Felix. This very unjust ruler. Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your far, foresight, most excellent, Felix, uh, reforms are being made for this nation. Now, these aren't good reforms. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Now, this is a first-class hiney kissing, if, you, if can I say it that way. This is not, that's not a biblical term. This is really trying to butter up this judge. He says, but to detain you no further, I beg you, uh, sorry, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all of the Jews throughout the world. And he's a ringleader. Now, hold on. When you, when you read some of the writings, of uh, uh, Roman writings, about what is happening around this time, the emperor writes a letter because there are riots rising up amongst the provinces, amongst Jewish people, fighting against the Roman Empire for their ridiculous second-class citizen treatment of the Jews. And so there are riots breaking out everywhere. And one, something that stuck out to me, and I had read this, this, this proclamation from the emperor a while ago, and when I read this, I was like, oh, he used the same word the emperor used. The emperor used the exact same word that these people are a plague and they must be destroyed. And so I think it's interesting that Tertullius uses this word. This man is a plague, just like your boss says, judge. When he says that he's stirring up riots, this is chargeable under Rome. It's considered sedition. It's an insurrection against the empire. So they have something that they think they can bring to, uh, to the governor. He also says something this. He's the ringleader of this sect of Nazarenes. Now, at first glance, you're, gonna, you're not going to notice this, but th when he calls them a sect of, Naz uh, the, of the Nazarenes, meaning they're a sect of our religion, uh, Judaism was viewed as a religion that was deemed by Rome to be acceptable and could practice. Now, what he's doing, he's saying, they're not part of that. They're something else which would be heresy. They don't deserve our protection. They shouldn't have our protections to practice their religion. So he's kind of set, trying to separate Christianity from the Jews. It says, he, it says, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Now this is their only religious kind of charge that they have. This is something Rome wouldn't judge on. This is something they would handle themselves. So this is kind of like going to fall on deaf ears, essentially. And remember, he's really painting in such a nice picture because he says, we saw him defiling the temple, essentially, and we seized him. Do you guys remember what they did? They didn't seize him. They started a riot in a mob and beat him almost to death. So they're curating the story. But by examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse, meaning we hope that you're going to take up this investigation against Paul. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, now this is unusual. This did not happen in cases like this. Usually the governor would say, listen, I got some questions for you, Paul. And he would directly question Paul then and there. This was very common throughout a lot of 
Roman practice, especially in judicial cases. This says a lot about Felix. Now, when you see it, you go, this is a guy who actually really doesn't care about this case. He's going to care about something in a minute, though. It says the Jews were joined in charge, affirming that all these things were so, right? And, he, and, and, so, and when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied. And Paul says this, knowing that for many years you have been judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify. Now, they come with accusations, with no proof. And I like how Paul starts it out. You can verify that, the, that it is not, not more than 12 days since I went and worshipped in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd. Either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. What he's really saying is, if you do the math though, Paul's only been free really for five days. So Paul's saying, how could I start an insurrection as an out-of-towner in five days? They have no proof of this. How can, I, how, can I, how can I whip up this huge frenzy in five days? Paul's essentially saying to Felix, do the math. It's just not possible. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, Christianity, which they call a sect. Now Paul's going to bridge this gap. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, uh, having hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Now, Paul is speaking probably, I believe, to, to the Sadducees and the high priests who do not believe in resurrection. And in a sense, Paul is saying, listen, if anything, I'm more in line with this place, with essentially the place you're governing to keep peace. I'm more in line with the general population than these guys are. It's a really good defense he's making for himself. And he goes on to say, uh, verse 16, so uh, I always take pains to keep clear conscience. That's that word we talked about last week, toward both God and men. I'm right with myself here. Now, after several years, I have come to bring alms to my nation to present an offering. I came with aid. I didn't come with weapons. I came to help. Now, this is the part of Paul's defense where Felix takes notice, and you'll find out later why he took notice of it. He said, while I was doing this, they found me purifying in the temple without any crowd or tumult. He said, but some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make these accusations. Should they have anything to say against me? Meaning that they don't have any witnesses. I've, I've been acting correctly and rightly. I've only had five days. I couldn't have uh, an insurrection against Rome or against anyone. And the, the accusers aren't even here. Do we have a term for this now? Is this like called fake news now? Like is Paul saying it's fake news? Like I don't know what he's doing, but he's definitely saying it. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood up before the council. Now, if you remember, uh, the Tribune had sent a letter of the the uh, case that just happened that brought Paul here, and he had a detailed message of actually what happened in there. So he's like. They can't even prove these facts. And if they want to accuse me, let's just read the letter that was sent to you. 
He said, other than this, the one thing that carried out while uh, uh, standing among them, it was with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. And Paul is saying, it's briefly, it, it's, it's, sorry, it's, this belief is widely held amongst our people. So what's the accusation? Now, Mike Peters, you would be the only one to know this. This is a good defense, is it not, right? He doesn't have any, he's the, he's the witness and there's nobody coming up against him. Like, he's got all the facts and he defends himself well. That's not the real moral of the story. Paul is very gifted. He's not, he's not an attorney, but he's very gifted. And the one thing he has on his side that will always beat a really good prosecutor is the truth. He has the truth and he fights for the truth. What you can take from this is that I believe as believers, you don't lay down. You stand with the truth. If you have the truth, you stand in the truth. Even against accusation, you hold by the truth. And Paul says, I'm in good conscience. I'm clear. I know what I'm doing is true. Paul easily wins this case, but then Felix has other plans. And this is what causes this issue that we have to ask this question about waiting on God. Because this is what Paul's going to have to do. Felix dismisses it, he dismisses the, the prosecutors, go back to Jerusalem, I'm going to keep Paul here, he puts him back into custody, he pulls him out from time to time, and he's like, hey, so you said you brought some aid, huh? <laughs> this is really what it is, and he keeps trying to get Paul to bribe him, this is a really, really good justice system, he keeps trying to get Paul to give him some money, and he goes, I'll favor, I'll, I'll win this in your favor if you just give me some money, one time he pulls Paul out. And he gets something he doesn't want. Paul begins to say, you should read it. Paul begins to say, like, uh, essentially calling out Felix's sin. If you knew Felix and his history, he, he, he wasn't a, a moral man. And so he was unjust. He had no self-control. Even the wife he has, he stole from another man when she was, uh, when she was young and began to seduce her and take her. He, he has a very horrible history. He was corrupt, and his power had conflicted his decisions. He was unjust. And Felix hears what Paul is saying and then essentially says, you got to get away from me. He, he literally panics, said, you got to go away from me. I can't hear this truth. Paul will always stand for his truth. He will never back down. This is the man who's going to determine his fate, yet Paul still tells the truth. I love, I love that example. But what happens is what will lead us into the sermon is that he is left incarcerated for two years, unjustly, no trial. And the guy's just trying to get Paul to give money that he was bringing for those who were in need and give it to him so he can get out of prison. And I love that integrity of Paul. He doesn't do it. He waits it out. Can you imagine how Paul felt during all of that? Have you ever been there where you're just kind of like in neutral for years? Everything stops and you're sitting there for two years? Do you know that Paul would complete one of his missionary journeys in less time? All of those cities, all of those churches planted. This guy was go, 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 and then boom. He sits for two years. I think you can kind of imagine that. I, wasn't that about the time of the pandemic? Can you imagine? 
I think you can imagine it. It was so difficult. You had your rhythm. You had your life. You had everything that almost was kind of just moving all on automatic. And then in one day, boom, March 16th, I'll never forget it, 2020. And your life changed. And you were in a moment like Paul. You were going, and then you just were stopped. It was very, very hard. But listen, when you're in these moments, which you all, we all just came through, I had some questions to ask is what did God do within you during that time? Because that's what Paul's going to be going through. What is God doing in that time of where he is on a mission and he is stalled for two years because of injustice for Paul and he's waiting and he's waiting? And he's waiting on God. Well, during that pandemic time, because I think we can somewhat relate as a whole. All of us, many of us have been, we felt like in neutral for years and years and years in areas. But I think we can all relate together in this corporately. That what did God do during that time of that two years in you? What was he doing? We should, we should ask that question. And what was the waiting like for you? In the beginning, I was like, not okay. How about you? I was like, did not like that. In the beginning, it was like, oh, wow, what do we do now? Just nothing? It was a weird feeling because I I work very much off of routine. And then eventually, I began to unravel a little bit, and I could see that that time that was really, I could have leaned into God and waited on him. I kind of started to unravel a little bit. It was a very hard thing, and those two questions were very hard for me to answer. What do we do when we're waiting on God? What is he doing in us when we just sit and we're in neutral for a little bit? Now, the reason why this two years stings so much and why it's so difficult is last week we heard what Jesus said to Paul in Acts 23, 11. It's on the screen. Take courage. Jesus is standing by his side just before all of this happens as You have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. You must testify in Rome. So Paul's like, oh, yeah, I'm on my way. I'm I'm going. And all of a sudden, two years, you're sitting in prison, getting hustled for money and waiting and waiting and waiting. I can't imagine every day Paul's going, there's work to be done, but I'm waiting. Something's happening within Paul. Now, You have to know, most people believe that some of his epistles were written during this time, so he didn't just twiddle his thumbs. Paul was doing work. Paul was getting to work in his waiting time. But day after day goes by, still no Rome. Can you relate in your own life? Day after day goes by, that thing that you were hoping for, that God you felt like was promising to you, day after day goes by, still know that, still know that. You wake up, you go to bed, still know that. It's hard to be patient. It's hard to wait. I think we all need to hear this. It's hard to wait. I was thinking about some of my own things, and, you know, some of us, we can't wait 20 minutes to get a table at a restaurant. I literally have walked into restaurants. They're like, it's going to be 10 minutes. I was like, it's not going to be me then. It's like unbelievable. 10 minutes for a text back. I've had people text me, and now don't text me, I'm the worst, but I've had people text me, and within 10 minutes, they're like, did you get my text? And I'm like, oh my gosh, you got to stop. Worst block? I don't know. But like, 
it's unbelievable. 10 seconds for a buffering video. For me, it's 100% that way. It's like very, very, very difficult. Day after day, Paul's waiting on God. Now, we can't talk about waiting on God like Paul, what he's doing, and, and not talk about what is waiting on God. I think some of us don't really maybe realize what waiting on God is. Habakkuk 2.3 gives us the clearest scriptural picture of what it is to actually wait on God. What does that mean? And it says this, for still the vision waits, awaits its appointed time, meaning that it is out of your hands. There's an appointed time and it's out of your hands. And so right now you're in the middle. And in the middle, there's so much that takes place in the middle within ourselves, within our trust in God, within our faith. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. But you're in the middle. Okay, this is waiting on God. If it seems slow, wait for it. Right? It will surely come. It will not delay. What a beautiful picture of what it means. What is waiting on God? That is waiting on God. It's going to seem slow, but wait for it. It will not lie. It has an end. It is appointed. Just wait for it. That's waiting on God. Joseph in Genesis 37 is, a, is probably biblically the best story about what it means to wait on God. You know, Paul actually was told what his purpose was going to be, so he had something kind of to hang on to. It's somewhat rare, actually. To, to, to not have that vision in Scripture through a major character. Moses had the vision. The conclusion was given to him. right? David had the conclusion. Even though he waited, what, what, 15 years before he became king, he was still given the conclusion, right? He was still given the promise. Joseph was one of the very few characters who was given nothing. And that's where I feel he can be very relatable to us. Because you may not have exactly what God has for you, but Joseph didn't either. Joseph was just a, a nice kid whose brothers didn't like him and got jealous of a vision that God had given and, and about, about what Joseph would eventually be. But really, it was very unclear how and why and what. And so they beat him up and they sold him into slavery. And Joseph, this kid, just goes through difficult time after difficult time in all of that. Joseph's big promotion was, after he was accused of sexual assault, was put into prison. And then his big accomplishment was Joseph became the head inmate. That's quite a thing to brag about. I'm the, I'm the pod boss, okay? Joseph becomes the pod boss. And then from there, he, he continually goes up and up. But what you find throughout Joseph's story, worth reading, goes all the way, I think, through 51. It, it's worth reading because you see that he just maintained his trust that God had something for him. It just wasn't, he wasn't revealed quite yet, but he was faithful in with what he had. That, that's very relatable to us. You don't know exactly what God has, but you do know that he has a purpose and a plan. And it's revealed slowly as long as I think we maintain our character within the waiting. He was faithful with little, and then he eventually became faithful with much. He had no idea that his position would save probably hundreds of thousands of lives because of the position he was put in. 
He had no idea that was going to be what God had for him while he was the, the pod boss of the jail. We have to learn from people like that in Scripture. It's important that we do. It, it, waiting isn't inactivity. You have to remember that. It, it's, it's a struggle because waiting neutral is not inactivity. It is waiting is, acti is activity in hope. You're active, but you're hopeful. You don't try to control it. You don't try to maintain it yourself. You don't try to take it from God. Every time we do that, we always screw it up, right? Every time we take control from God in the waiting time, we try to figure something out because we're all afraid and nervous. But it, we are active in our trust, in our just being faithful what God has placed in front of us day by day. That is what it means to be waiting on God. And that's probably exactly what's happening while Paul is incarcerated. You know, I was thinking about this and thinking about Joseph. And, you, and a lot of you don't know this, but eight years before we planted Soundhouse, I wanted to plant Soundhouse eight years before that. I knew I started looking on my own at church properties. Not here. I was in Michigan, and I was looking at different places, and I found a place, and I talked to people who said, oh, we would definitely love to fund that. You could buy this building. It was right downtown, and you could, you, you have a lot of people who are behind you, and I remember this, and and I remember a very wise person, an elder from another church, sat me down and asked me a question that I could not answer. But I think about that, and I think, yeah, eight years beforehand, I was waiting and waiting and waiting. I wrote this down. Just I had to stop because I started getting, I think, a little emotional. Uh, so I just summarized it. The journey there has been three different cities that we have moved to in the waiting 5,000 miles of living different places all over in the waiting. I had three different jobs. We were in three different regions from people who said y'all to people who said uh, milk instead of milk. That's you. And uh, that's a California accent. You don't know you have it. It, 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 it was over a thousand more sermons I wrote in my career before we planted the, surge, uh, the, the church. Uh, I had several church roles that I was wondering, why am I even doing these roles? But God was in the step with me that one day we'll plant Soundhouse. We had personal crises. We had a lot of peaks and valleys. And then eight years later, we start this church that I felt was eight years prior. You don't know what the waiting is like, but I, I do want to learn from people like Joseph that I'm just going to be faithful with what I have as God is making a way in behind the scenes, shaping you in the waiting. That's really where you become the most faithful is in the waiting. Each day was a step-by-step -step waiting in, in, in act of hope. Uh, how do I wait on the Lord? That's another good question. So we know what waiting on God is, but how do you you wait on the Lord. One, I'm just going to give you three. There's more. The, the, these are important ones. One is you have to have strength. If you can't get the strength yourself, you've got to find it from God. You need strength. It's waiting and, and being patient is strength. And if you don't think it's strength, you're wrong. Listen to Psalms 27, 13. I believe 
that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Meaning this, I'm not going to look upon the goodness of the Lord in my life. When I'm dead, I believe that I'm going to see it in the land of the living. I love that. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. We just heard Jesus say that to Paul. Wait for the Lord. It takes strength to wait and be patient. It's very difficult. But man, it really shapes you. I am going to quote someone that I personally just was a fan of, but isn't theological or isn't, I don't even believe was a Christian, but he had an interesting thought about patience. Bruce Lee, of all people, said, patience is not passive. On the contrary, it is a concentrated strength. I like that statement. It's concentrated strength. Patience is strength. You got to be strong. That's how you wait on the Lord. And patience will be your strength. When you want to lose hope, you still hope. That's strength. Patience tames a restless and an irrational, anxious mind. Patience will tame that mind. And it takes strength to do it in patience. I think the, the greatest wars that are ever won are through patience. The greatest battles we've ever overcome is just waiting. And God constantly tells us to wait on the Lord. Right? He'll renew our strength. Just wait on the Lord. The second one is faith. You need faith in those waiting times when you're waiting on the Lord. And you need it. You need to lean into your faith. Romans 8.25 says, But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. If we hope for what we do not see, meaning faith. We wait for it with patience. And that is a part of just your faith. You're going to have to trust and, and believe in what you cannot see that is unraveling in front of you. Paul is sitting in that, that, that incarceration, patient, waiting for what he cannot see. He knows he's supposed to go to Rome, but he's sitting under an unjust governor who could execute him at any time. And is trying to extort him. He's waiting for what he cannot see. John 20, Thomas is a great example of someone who needs faith but doubts. And so I'll just tell you this. Jesus says to Thomas, why don't you go ahead and touch me and then you'll believe, right? But then Jesus says, great, you believe. But he tells Thomas, it's better to, to, to not see and believe. So he allows Thomas the opportunity to believe, but then he tells him the truth. It's better to not see and believe that is what it means waiting on God. And I have this question for you. Think of all the unseen, underdeveloped, seemingly impossible things on your heart that we hope for and then apply Romans 8.25. Anything that you are have not seen happen, anything that it seems impossible or it's underdeveloped and you're just waiting, apply Romans 8.25. Anytime you encounter that. And remind yourself that you need to be patient in the things that are unseen. God is doing something you don't know. The last thing is this is prayer. Prayer is a moment that we need to take often and sometimes throughout our entire waiting period. You're waiting. I don't know what your waiting is. Your waiting could be for what the, the, uh, it could be for what God has for you in a career, what he wants to use you. And your waiting can be in your relationships. Your waiting can be in, 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 in 
healing, for someone to, to have wholeness and life. Your waiting can be in a lot of different places, but listen, there's one place to go, and it's prayer. I don't know if there's a more effective thing in your life in the waiting period is prayer than what God does in prayer. Romans 12, 12. By the way, these are Paul's words. So rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation, which he's facing. Be constant in prayer. You got you to gotta wait in hope. In tribulation, you got to be constant in prayer. Uh, there's a really great biblical story on Elijah. And it's in Kings, what is it? Kings 8, 1 Kings 18. Elijah is facing all kinds of battles spiritually. It's that wonderful scene of the altar and the, and the fire coming down. And they poured all this water. And God's displaying that he is greater than Baal. And, and, and the spiritual climate of, of, of Israel shifts to God. And they put out Baal and all of its prophets. But there's been a three-year drought in the land. And I find Elijah's approach interesting. He goes up to the mountain, and he's in the mountain, and he's praying. And it says he got down on his knees and in his hands, and he's praying. And he's praying for rain. And he tells the, the, one of the guys with him, he says, go out and after he prays and see if you can see rain. He comes back, he's like, I don't see rain. And he's like, okay, I'm going to pray again. He does this seven times. He goes out, and he's looking for rain. He's like, I don't see, I don't see rain. And then the seventh time he prays, he says, go out and see if there's rain. And he comes back and goes, you're not going to believe it. There's a very small little cloud, and it's approaching, and it's coming. And he gets up, and he's like, tell the king we're going to have rain. It, it's an amazing story because it's persistence. It's not giving up. He's just praying. and He's going, we're going to do it again, and we're going to do it again, and we're going to do it again. How many of you have prayed for the same thing over and over and over and over? I love this story in Elijah because he models for us that you just stay consistent. You do not give up on prayer. I'll close with this last story. Um, we had a couple in our church that moved, unfortunately, and uh, they just had this really amazing life they lived, and I, I really appreciated their, their steps of faith. And they had this thing called a, a little prayer box, and what they would do is they, they would have something or somebody they're praying for, and they put it in this little box, and then they put it in the box, and, and they would just bring out the box and just look and be like, oh, God hasn't answered it yet. Okay, we're going to pray for it, and they put it back in the box, and it, it was just over and over and over. I remember I went over and had lunch at their house, and they were telling me about it, and I was like, okay, so show me this prayer box. And it, it was just such an inspiration to me. That they just didn't give up on those prayers. They said, it's not coming out of there until it's answered. That's like Elijah type of faith. And they would just go check it and be like, well, we don't see the storm cloud yet. Okay, we're going to do pray again. We're going to don't see the storm cloud yet. Prayer is what, what we do when we're in the waiting. Right? We don't see it, but we're praying. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit will intercede on your behalf even when you don't have the words to say. God is petitioning for you even though you may not even have the words to say it. I'll close with this last verse. It's one of my favorites. It's in Philippians 1.6, and I think it's an encouragement to all of us when we're in the waiting, when we're waiting on God, and this is how you wait on the Lord. Philippians 1.6, Paul says this, And I am certain 
other translations will say, and I am confident that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until his finally finished on the day when Christ returns. Meaning this, he's not going to quit midstream. So don't quit midstream. God is saying, Paul is saying, he's not going to stop. So don't stop. He will not give up on you. He will not quit when it's very, very hard and it seems bleak. And you're in the valley of the shadow of death. And you're in the waiting. And you're like, I used to be on the peak. Now I'm in the valley. What's going on, God? He will not give up on you. He will finish the work that he's doing. But like we talked about with the pandemic... What was going on in the pandemic? What work was needing to be done in your life? I bet you can write a list of probably a hundred things that you now have learned since that two years, like Paul, where it felt like incarceration. Things that you needed to work on. Things that maturity things that you needed to work on. Areas of your life that you needed to refocus and shift. You could write a huge list, and you probably should, maybe for Thanksgiving, just a, just a thought. That what God had done in your life over those two years, and we will then understand maybe what's happening within that prison cell of Paul. You are in the waiting, and God is doing something really, really good. He will not quit on you midstream. Paul held on to a promise that he was given. But I want you to think about Joseph, maybe, too. And that you might relate a little bit more to Joseph. And Joseph held on to his Trust in God's unfolding plan. It was one day at a time that God has a plan. He will finish what he started. I don't know exactly what it's going to be, but I'm going to hang on to that because he will not quit on me. Can you guys bow your heads? I think both of them experience hardship and difficulty and frustration. That waiting, it, it turned <laughs> their character into something new. Waiting, I think, builds your character. It promotes you, I think, to another place where God's faithfulness will, will, will show itself. And the responsibility that he wants to place in your hands will be trusted. So I think we can walk away and say, I know what waiting on God is. And I know how to wait on God. And I'm just going to put it in your hands to go out. And when you're in the waiting... Those three things are extraordinarily important, but God is doing something incredible in your heart, preparing you in those times for the greater task. He always does. I, I, I would be lying if I said I hadn't seen that in my own life many times. So let's be like Paul. Let's be like Joseph and be faithful with what we have in the waiting. Those letters that Paul wrote revolutionized those churches while he was in the waiting. The theology and the crispness of who Jesus was, was in the waiting. That form a lot of what we believe and how we believe in our faith was in that waiting. Those words Paul wrote weren't just good sayings. They were lived out and they were wise in the waiting. What is God doing in your life in the waiting? God, we love you and we thank you. God, that question, how am I with waiting, I hope we can all work on that in our own life. In this culture that is 100% pedal to the metal, God, that we have a little bit bigger perspective about you in our lives 
And maybe what's best for us, maybe what you're doing in us in these times of waiting. We thank you, God, that you have never let us down and you will not let us down. And God, that we just are excited about what you're doing in these moments in our life. And maybe, God, when we do go back and we write that list about the two years of waiting, God, we'll see that, oh, my gosh, you were in, at work in my life, God. You were shaping me, and I am the person I am today because of those times. I didn't even realize it, but it was in the waiting. We love you, God. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me this last song?